You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. This is week one, an introduction to the study of the book of Matthew. As um, Christy said, I'm Chris Cox, and along with Christy Hess and Lindsay Smoker, uh, we're teaching this spring, but Brianna Kaufman and Cindy James also were on the study writing team, so we want to mention them. So today, I'm first going to talk about WF's vision and the study process, and then we'll do some background on Matthew and how it fits into scripture. So the mission statement is up on the screen. The mission of Women's Bible Fellowship is to create an environment for women to grow as disciples of Christ. In participation with the Spirit, we seek to cultivate this growth through the study of Scripture and through fellowship in the intergenerational family of God. Specifically, we desire to see women grow in their knowledge of and affection for God, resulting in sanctifying transformation. Okay, that seems real formal, but we want to keep putting it in front of you because we are intentional about what we're doing. We want to see women grow as disciples of Christ. And we do that through scripture study and intergenerational fellowship. You have the opportunity here to mingle with a lot of women that you might not otherwise run into, to deepen and enrich your fellowship. We found that it's been so good. And the one anothering is a crucial part of what we do here. Um, as we pray for each other, as we encourage one another, as we share study insights with each other, that's powerful. I studied the Bible in college and in seminary and in the years since then, and yet sitting at a table with a group of women, I gain new insights all the time. God continues to work and he works through us. God designed us to grow best through that body life, so that's an important part of what we do. What about the studying? We have three basic goals. They're up there, knowledge, affection, and sanctifying transformation. You've heard us say, you the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So we start with knowledge. But growth in knowledge has to lead to a deeper commitment to God, a deeper love for him, a determination to cling more closely to Christ. So that's where the affection comes in. And as we do that week by week, we're transformed more into the image of Christ. So the statement says, we do that in participation with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit working in and through us. No part of that, not the knowledge, not the affection, not the changed lives, is anything we can do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to knit us together as a body, to use us to minister to each other. It's a supernatural undertaking. It's way beyond us. But God wants to do this for us, and we trust him to work. So you see in the WBF logo, it's also on the back of your book, it shows the three goals of knowledge, affection, and transportation. The Bible is the knowledge core, the heart is the growing affection, and the tree shows the fruit of transformation. So we want you, whenever you see that, just think about those three things. As Christy said, the Bible is central to everything we do in WBF. There are two main ways to approach scripture, to read it broadly and quickly to get the big picture, or slowly and deeply to take in the details. This study goes more deeply, but I don't want you to ignore the broader reading. 
If you've never read through the whole Bible, let me encourage you to do it this year. There are lots of good reading plans to follow. And if you haven't done it before, find a chronological plan that puts all the history pieces in order. It's eye-opening to grasp that big picture. The YouVersion app that LEFC uses has several chronological plans, or anyone on the study team would love to help you find a plan to use. It's good to absorb big pieces of scripture. I don't know how many times I've read the Bible through, and still each year I feel like I need the whole thing again, not just the parts I'm studying closely. I don't feel properly fed without the whole Bible as a balanced meal. Have you ever told your children to eat a balanced diet from every food group? Well, this year, do that for your spiritual life. Try it. So this spring, we're studying Matthew. In the fall, if you've been here before, we have various electives that cover different aspects of the Christian life, spiritual disciplines or specific issues. We do a large group Bible study every spring to focus on biblical literacy. So the last two years, we were in Exodus, and now we're in Matthew. How many of you have never been to WBF before? Is there anyone here as a first-timer? Wow, a lot of you. Well, welcome. So we're going to talk a little bit about the study method. It'll be new for you, and it'll be a good review for those of us who've gone through the book before. We use an inductive study method. We call it inductive Bible study. We slow down. We dig deeply into the text to see what God has for us. The big picture is important, but there's purpose in every inspired detail that's written. And we want to dig up and discover the treasures that God has planted there for us. So see yourselves as treasure hunters this spring. The method isn't something we invented. A lot of studies use a basic inductive method. So page one in your workbook is an overview of the process, if you want to look at it again later. Um, in everything we do, we keep God as the main focus. It's tempting to slide ourselves in as the most important part of the story. And as fallen humans, we do that without even realizing it. But this is God's story, so we're going to keep him at the center. After we familiarize ourselves with the background, the first big step is observation. What does the text say? We read slowly and carefully, paying attention to each detail. We focus on what it actually says. We look for repetition, for patterns and structure, for times and names and places. Okay, Matthew's familiar to a lot of us, right? So we have to be careful not to read into the words things that we've heard preached or been taught as children, but see what it says. Remember, for Exodus, we said you had to forget Prince of Egypt and the Charlton Heston movie and just look at the text. Okay, we'll do that again. How many of you grew up singing the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are? Okay, and this week's homework, check that against the text. You might not sing it again. <laughs> so the second step is interpretation. What does this actually mean? What does it say about God? Why is it included in scripture? What did it mean to the original readers or listeners? How does it carry out the flow of thought or fit into the context? And we'll look up definitions and cross-references. Don't be afraid of questions you can't answer or answers that aren't very clear. You will never have all the answers. 
So we need to learn to sit in that perplexing space before God and just seek him. Pat answers don't help us grow. The third step is application. Remember we said the final goal is life change. How should this affect the way I think and act and feel? What decisions do I need to make? How do I align my life with the God who's being revealed to me? The application comes last, after we have a good grasp of what the text is saying. We build the application on God's character and on the meaning of scripture, not taking things out of context or just looking for a quick fix. That's tempting, isn't it? So with that in mind, please don't look at commentaries until after we've done the lesson in class. We want to dig in for ourselves first. So each week's lesson uses those three steps. We don't have assignments for each day of the week. The lesson is broken into two or three large sections of scripture. Each section has the observation, interpretation, application steps. Look with me at the homework for next week on page 10 in your workbook. By the way, you do the homework before the teaching for that week. So this is week one, you had no homework. Um, so next week, do the homework for week two before you come back for the second week. So on page 10, see the prayer at the top of the page? Remember, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we start by acknowledging God and asking for his help. Don't skip this. Maybe you need to go through your book and highlight it every week so that you'll remember to do it. Right below the prayer, it says that every week we'll look for descriptions of God's character and attributes and mark them in yellow. That's where, as Christy said, you can use the study journal. As you work through the lessons, we'll mark a lot of things. Just look at question six on that page. It says underline some things in orange and blue. So you want a small set of colored pencils. We're not gonna ask for magenta or chartreuse or anything fancy, just a basic eight color set will do, okay? If you want to, you know, I'm not saying, but, but we, we're not gonna insist. So for each section of scripture, you walk through the three basic steps. At the end of the week, there's a big picture wrap up and you pull together what you've learned. And at the end of each week, there's a page for taking notes on the teaching time. So in a few minutes, you'll take notes for today on page seven. We've put some extras in the workbook to help you. Look at those, page two has a partial list of God's attributes to help stimulate your thinking while you're studying. The next page, page three, is a visual chart of the story of scripture and we'll use that in a couple of minutes. Page four has a map to help you follow the geography of Matthew. The important places are Judea in the south with Jerusalem in the center and Galilee in the north. Samaria's in between, but not much of the story takes place in Samaria. So Judea and Galilee are what to remember. Remember, these are historical events that happen in real time, real places. Page five lists the Old Testament references in Matthew. There are a lot of them, so they're there for you to know. Turn the page. Page six gives a harmony of the four gospel records of Holy Week, the week that, of Jesus' death and resurrection. And Christy mentioned the scripture journal. Look at that for a minute if you haven't. There's a lot of blank space. 
That's for you to underline, to mark up, to make notes, draw arrows and diagrams, create beautiful pictures, calligraphy. If you know a lady who does beautiful work, I already said to someone, I want to see your book when we're done because I know it'll be great. Anything that helps you get a better grasp of the text, use it as a working tool to process your thoughts. That's what it's for. Okay, that's a lot. If you, if you haven't done this before, it might seem overwhelming. And you do have to invest yourself, but I guarantee if you stick with it, you will reap much more than you sow. It's a great investment. Eventually, the rhythm becomes second nature. Our goal is that you can take this study method on your own, apply it to other parts of the Bible without even needing a workbook. This is a tool that you can use for the rest of your lives. And if you have more questions, your table leaders will always help you. You will get the maximum benefit if you do the homework every week. There's just no shortcut around that, right? But doing at least part of the homework is better than doing none of it. And please don't stay away one week just because you haven't finished the homework. Come anyway, make a plan for how to do better next time. You may not contribute much to the table discussion, but you'll keep up with the flow of the book. So we start each week by praying for each other at our tables and then discussing the homework and then the teacher gives the main lesson. Okay? Now we get to the fun part the Bible content. This is the good stuff. That was just um, details. Before we talk about Matthew, we want to set it in the context of God's overall plan. You can turn back to page three if you want to follow along in the chart there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before the beginning, God existed in three persons in perfect harmony and fellowship. He didn't create the universe because he was lonely or needy but as an outflow and display of his glory. A couple weeks ago in his sermon, Matt reminded us that the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When he created the world, God made man in his own image, uniquely capable of reflecting God's character and of relating to God. But we're not the focal point of the story. God is, even though it's an incredible privilege to be humans made in the image of God and be created to live in God's presence and relating to him, bringing him glory and worship. Adam and Eve were also supposed to have dominion over God's perfect creation. But at some point, and the Bible isn't clear exactly when, Satan rebelled against God and took many angels with him. So Satan came to the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve. They followed Satan's advice and disobeyed God, and that perfect creation was disrupted, and mankind and the earth fell under the influence of Satan. Now men and women face great difficulty carrying out their God-assigned roles, and everyone since then is born with a sin nature, except Jesus. God is still sovereign, but from that point until the final consummation of his kingdom, men and angels resist his will and rebel against him. His sovereignty is challenged constantly. All of us were born into a world where some people rebel and choose against God and others choose to align with God. And we tend to think of that as normal, don't we? But it is not. It is a terrible travesty of God's created order and it has to come to an end. 
God will deal with sin and rebellion and return creation to its perfect order. Scripture tells us that even before creation, God had a plan to set things right, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And although God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he promised Eve that a child born of her line would crush Satan's head. So the rest of scripture tells the story of God's powerful working to restore things to their rightful state, to reign in uncontested sovereignty once more, to establish the kingdom of God. So remember that phrase, kingdom of God. We'll talk more about it later. It's huge in Matthew. Part of God's overall plan is the redemption of mankind, the provision of a savior. God could have simply wiped out what was sinful at that point. That would have demonstrated his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. But in providing redemption through the Son, we see not only God's justice and holiness, but his mercy, his grace, his love are demonstrated in a way that simple punishment would never show. So his plan of salvation and judgment displays the full breadth of God's character. In Ephesians chapter one, that's a beautiful description of our redemption and salvation. Three times Paul uses the phrase, to the praise of his, God's glory. Verses five and six say that our adoption as God's children is to the praise of his glory. These are abbreviated. You need to read the whole paragraph on your own later. Um, Verse 11 says that we were predestined so that we might be to the praise of God's glory. And verse 14 says that possessing our inheritance from God is to the praise of his glory. You see, God loves us deeply. He covenants with us. He sent his son to redeem us. But we're still not the focal point. We are glorifying God and being saved. So, back to Adam and Eve. As a consequence of their sin, they were cast out of the garden. Their firstborn son murdered his brother. And sin was entrenched in the human line. Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel show God's intervention in that downward spiral. Then in Genesis 12, God intervened again. He chose Abraham, a man willing to act in faith and believe God's word. He promised to make a great nation out of Abraham and that through him all nations would be blessed. He repeated the promise to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those would be the 12 tribes eventually. His jealous brothers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, but God turned the situation around to make Joseph second in power to Pharaoh and the savior of his family when they were starving of famine in Canaan. Abraham's descendants multiplied in Egypt under God's favor, but they were forced into slavery. So two years ago, we studied the first half of Exodus, how God raised up Moses to rescue the Israelites through the 10 plagues and to lead them safely through the Red Sea. Last year, we watched as God, through Moses, began to build his promised nation. Pop quiz. Anyone remember what three things are required for a nation? Mm, Been a long year, huh? (laughs) People, land, and a law. I see somebody nodding. Okay. So last year, God's chosen people were headed to the promised land, And at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with them. 
He promised that the nation of Israel would flourish in the new land if they obeyed him, but would be sent into exile if they disobeyed. And God gave them the law. The law was not to be a means of salvation. Salvation has always been through faith as the Passover demonstrated. But the law was given to teach the people who God is and how to live in proper relationship with this God who is now coming to dwell in their midst through the tabernacle. But the people rebelled and didn't trust God, so they wandered 40 years in the wilderness instead of entering straight into the promised land. Joshua finally led them in, but throughout the period of the judges, Israel continued to sin and rebel against God. Saul, the first king, was a failure. Then God put David on the throne, a man after his own heart. He promised that the kingdom would never pass from David's descendants, but would be an eternal, glorious kingdom. David, a passionate worshiper and a powerful warrior, led Israel to huge military victories and expanded the kingdom so that Solomon, David's son, ruled over a powerful and wealthy Israel and built a glorious temple that replaced the wilderness tabernacle. But once again, sin and God's judgment intervened. The kingdom of Israel split into two parts. Israel in the north, 10 tribes under various kings, and Judah in the south, where the unbroken line of David continued to reign in Jerusalem over the other two tribes. The rulers of both kingdoms were sometimes good. More often, they led the people in idolatry. God sent prophets to warn the people of horrible consequences for their disobedience and to call them back to him. But the prophets were mostly ignored, often mistreated. The prophets didn't pronounce only judgment, though. They also spoke of a coming time when God would once again reign supreme. The line of David would rule, and not just Israel, but the whole earth would be put right, and all the nations would come to worship God. But in the face of all that, the sins of God people still piled up so high that God sent them into exile, as he warned. First, the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria. More than 100 years later, the southern kingdom was captured by Babylon. The temple was destroyed. God's plan seemed doomed. But God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years, his people would return to their land. So 70 years passed. New empires arose. The Israelites were allowed to trickle back into their homeland. A new, more simple temple was built. God continued to send prophets for a while, but eventually the prophetic words ceased. We often call the 400 years between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, the silent years. Although many Jews returned to their homeland, many were still spread out through the rest of the known world. And in Israel, things were never the same again. God's once proud and powerful nation was now ruled by stronger empires. First the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans dominated the promised land. So this is the setting when we come to the book of Matthew. The Romans are in control. The Jews chafe under the rule of godless, idolatrous pagans, and they long for the restored kingdom that God promised and the prophets spoke about. Messianic hope runs high, 
But the Old Testament prophecies are interpreted various ways. A few Jews expected two messiahs, one a king and one a priest. You see, they were trying to fit it all together. Some think that the prophecies would be fulfilled when they take things into their own hands and stage an armed rebellion. A few even claimed to be the messiah. But probably most are expecting a warrior king who will set them free. After all, the Messiah is called the son of David, right? The greatest warrior king ever. What else would he be? On the other hand, Jews who have power and influence with the Roman authorities don't really want things to change. They're happy. But almost everyone is looking for a political answer. They think that God should solve their political problems and set them up in power. They don't understand that their deepest problem is not their political circumstances, but their sin. So Jesus was teaching and preaching in a minefield of contradictory factions. Turn to page eight. We have a list there to help you keep some of these straight. Okay, first we have the government officials. Caesar was head of the Roman Empire. We have two different Herods. Herod the Great was king of Judea, that southern kingdom, when Jesus was born. He's the one who ordered baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed. He, ruled, he also ruled over Galilee and, and a lot of surrounding territories. He died not long after Jesus was born, and his kingdom was divided between Herod's four sons. One son listed there, Herod Antipas, was tetrarch of Galilee when John the Baptist and Jesus ministered. And he's the one who had John executed. Another son, Archelaus, isn't mentioned here because he ruled Judea, the southern kingdom, for a while, but he was replaced by Pilate before Jesus began his ministry. But Archelaus is mentioned in Matthew 2 as the reason Joseph took his family up to Galilee instead of um, coming back to Judea when they returned from Egypt. And as I said, Pilate took over the governorship of Judea, and he presided over Jesus' crucifixion. For the Jewish religious leaders and cultural leaders, you have Caiaphas, who was high priest. You have the chief priests. They came from influential priestly families. They held important positions. The elders were not priests, but they were tribal family heads. And the scribes were scholars trained in the law. So all three of those groups, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, were represented in the Sanhedrin. That was the 70-member Jewish high council. So you run into all these people. The factions or groups mentioned in Matthew include the Pharisees. They were a very strict, conservative, legalistic sect. They added many ritual traditions to the original law. And they were held in high esteem by most of the people as spiritual examples. The Sadducees were upper class, politically influential, religiously liberal, pretty happy with the status quo. The Zealots advocated armed revolt against Roman rule to overthrow them. And the Herodians supported the Herodian dynasty and the Roman government. So you see the diversity there. That's the background. What about Matthew's gospel itself? Turn back to page seven now. In terms of genre, 
Matthew is a gospel, one of four gospels that open the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the text of the New Testament, gospel specifically means the message about Christ. But we've come also to use that to label the four books that talk about the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when you see gospel in Matthew, it does not mean these four books. We've also, the gospels are a sort of biography, but they don't, they're not quite like modern biographies. They're very selective. They leave out a lot of information. They have a deliberate purpose. They're not just chronicles of what happened. They have a theme and an aim. Sometimes they're arranged thematically instead of chronologically. You can see that if you compare the books. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in their presentation, so we label those three gospels synoptic. That comes from the Greek sin together plus optic. They see together. They're looking at it from the same perspective. The author, none of the Gospels, none of the four Gospels actually gives the author's name in the text. It's not like Paul whose letters start with I, Paul, okay? But the unanimous tradition of the early church is that this book was written by Matthew, also called Levi, a former tax collector whom Jesus called to be a disciple. As to the date, we can't date the book precisely, but most conservative scholars say it was written in the early to mid-60s AD, early to mid-60s, before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Who was it written to? I see you still writing. (laughs) The audience was primarily Jewish Christians who accepted Jesus as Messiah and Lord. Matthew shows that following Messiah Jesus is the true way for a Jew to keep the faith. The setting moves between Judea and Galilee. Remember the map? Judea in the south saw itself as the sophisticated Jewish heartland and the pinnacle of Jewish culture and religion with Jerusalem and the temple at the center. Galilee in the north was more surrounded by Gentiles, had a much more mixed population, many Gentiles, and a strong Greek influence. So the Judeans looked down on the Galileans, sort of like country cousins, who were lax in religion and culturally compromised. They just weren't as good. Even the Galilean accent was the butt of jokes, sort of like New Yorkers looking down on West Virginia hillbillies. So why does it matter? Jesus was not from Judea, but Nazareth in Galilee. What about the structure of the book? You'll find that Matthew alternates between large sections of narrative action and large sections of teaching or preaching. It's the longest of the four Gospels. And we're going to trace several main themes in Matthew as we study. The first we've already mentioned, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The most truly Jewish thing you can do is to believe in Jesus. So you'll find many scripture references from the Old Testament being fulfilled in the gospel.
Matthew focuses on the kingdom of God. He mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven more than any book in the Bible. Early in Matthew, the teaching of both John the Baptist and Jesus is summarized as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Jesus, we have the beginning of the end, the first part of that great act of God that will set all things right and restore everything to its perfect state. Mankind and creation will be not just restored to their original state, but raised to a better one. All creation brought into subjection to Christ. So a short definition for the kingdom of God is, and I thought this was up there, but it's not. The rule and reign of Christ over all creation. The rule and reign of Christ over all creation. This is Christ's uncontested sovereignty. So there's both a now and a not yet to the kingdom. The kingdom's already here in the presence of Jesus as he demonstrates authority over nature and illness and demonic powers. Jesus describes it in parables and stories. But the second request in the Lord's prayer is that the kingdom would come. And later Jesus describes a final judgment. So is the kingdom really here now like a mustard seed or a bit of yeast growing? Or is it coming at the cataclysmic final intervention of God in human history? And the answer is it's both. Jesus' parables describe how it begins small, but toward the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks of his final coming and the judgment that will happen. And he ends with sending the disciples to preach to all nations. So the book of Acts and the epistles describe the expansion of the kingdom. That's the last part of the chart on page three that we didn't do yet. We live in the end times, an in-between period. The Messiah has come and accomplished redemption, initiated the kingdom, but we still await its true consummation. So you can see how this confused the Jews who expected an immediate political savior. Third, Matthew describes the essence of true faith, that it moves from simple assent to total allegiance to Christ. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. And fourth, Matthew shows how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, will be included in the kingdom. Matthew begins with Gentiles traveling huge distances to see the new Jewish baby king. And in the final chapter, Jesus commands his followers to make disciples of all nations, all the Gentiles. The Gentiles are always in view as part of God's plan. So, are you ready to get started? Are your heads swimming? It'll settle, it'll come clear as you, and we'll work through this together, so don't let it intimidate you. So now, dig in, do the exercises for week two, come back next week ready to talk about the treasures you've already discovered. So let me pray for our study together. God, you are so very good. We praise you for your excellence and your majesty and your dominion. We thank you for sending your son to redeem us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us and who will be working in and through us as we study together. We thank you for your word. What a treasure it is, full of more treasures. So I pray that as we study together in these next few weeks, all your will will be accomplished in our lives. May we be open to you. May we hear your spirit. May we glean from your word and from each other the things you want to teach us. I pray that you would knit us together, help us to support and encourage each other. 
And I ask that because of what we do here, our churches, whichever church we go to, and the nation and the world will be impacted because you are changing us and you are using us. Thank you that this is bigger than us, but it's nothing bigger than you. So we commit ourselves and the coming weeks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.